Thank you, Pastor Wagner, and I'm going to ask if you would to take your Bibles and turn with me in them to the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to John. I'm David King. I serve here at Christ Church as assistant to the pastor, and I'm giving the privilege this evening of assisting our pastors in the ministry of the Word. So let me encourage you to turn to John's Gospel, the 11th chapter. I want to begin reading at verse 17 through to verse 27. Hear the word of the true and living God. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. If you would bow with me, and as I pray, I would encourage you to pray for me uh, and for yourself as we come to the ministry of the Word. Let us pray. O holy and loving and merciful Father, we bow in your presence Coming now to the ministry of this, your holy word. And fathers, we do so, we're bold to beg you that the blessings of the grace and the power of your spirit would rest upon speaker and listener alike. I pray for those among us who are strangers to your grace, even as Pastor Wagner prayed, Father, that you would be pleased to speak to them. Draw them efficaciously unto yourself. And then, Father, we pray that we, your people, we ask that our minds and our hearts may be receptive to your truth in this hour. That we would not only have your truth direct our, the processes of our mind, but we pray, Father, that it would become that standard by which you norm and form our lives to bring us into conformity to the one who loved us 
and gave himself for us, even our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose blessed name we pray. Amen. One of the dangers always to avoid when you're reading the Bible is the danger of reading into a text or passage something that is not actually in the text or the passage. Perhaps one of the best known examples of that would be the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 3 and verse 20 where our resurrected and glorified Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And very often that verse is used evangelistically. Behold, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. Well, the bad theology of that aside, it's not an evangelistic context which we have in that passage. Jesus is speaking there to a church, Laodicea, that had lost its way. He is speaking to Christians. He is speaking to professing evangelical Christians whose love for him had become lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And he is pressing these professing believers to permit him once again to return to the midst of their fellowship, indeed to the very center of the life of their church, that he may reinvigorate them and stir them and stir the embers of their love to him once again. And thus we must always learn to read the Bible in its context. And we see the importance of that very much so here in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. And I hope that the context in which our Lord utters these glorious words I am the resurrection and the life, the fifth of these I am predicated utterances of our Lord, that they will become clear to us and help us to understand how we're to make sense of these words and how as God's people we are to profit from them. And that is because the context here governs how we're to understand, at least in principle, what our Lord Jesus means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So consider with me for a moment the context for these words which I read. Lazarus has been dead for four days. We gather that from verse 17 as well as verse 39 in the chapter. Jesus had received the news that Lazarus was seriously ill, but he purposefully, purposefully delayed his coming to comfort Martha and Mary. We learn from verse 3 and following, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed 
two more days in the place where he was. Now he was purposefully delaying his coming to comfort these sisters who were very anxious with respect to the condition of their brother who subsequently dies. And Jesus' response to that message is, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, our Lord has a divine purpose in delaying going to comfort these believing sisters who were deeply anxious about their brother who was seriously ill. And when Jesus eventually makes his way to Bethany, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Martha's words to Jesus as he arrives reflect that of a woman who is very perplexed and distraught in spirit. She expresses herself to Jesus saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In her grief and in her perplexity, she doesn't understand why Jesus has been so long in coming. Lord, if you had been here, you would have prevented his death. And what's implied by that is, why didn't you come sooner? And so she is inwardly grieved and perplexed and disturbed in her heart. And notice how Jesus responds to her in verse 3. He says this, Your brother will rise again. Now John's gospel is filled with what we can call double entendres. It's a figure of speech that has two meanings. Some have suggested that there are as many as a hundred of these embedded in the text of John's gospel. But this is surely one of them. Your brother will rise again. Now that's somewhat enigmatic. What does Jesus actually mean when he says those words? Notwithstanding, there is little doubt. But that in speaking in such a way, your brother will rise again, that Jesus' intention here is to draw out and to expand Martha's believing understanding. In other words, and this is the point of the context, Jesus is addressing a believer, a believer here. He's not speaking to an unbeliever. But he is addressing a despondent, a distraught, a broken-hearted believer who is in desperate need of hope and comfort. Your brother will rise again. Martha, you'll notice, says in verse 24, I know, in other words, you're not telling me anything new, Jesus. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Martha is a pious, believing, devout Jew. She understands in measure the scriptures. She's familiar with the fact that the righteous will rise in the last day. She knows passages like Daniel chapter 12 verses 2 through 3, as well as Job chapter 19 verses 25 through 26. Every pious, devout Jew, excluding 
the Sadducees believed that there would be a resurrection in the last day. But then here is the point of the passage. Martha does not yet understand what Jesus desires for her to understand. Perhaps for the very first time is that the last day has already arrived. The last day has already arrived. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus wants Martha to understand. Yes, Martha. But do you understand that the last day has already arrived? You see, Jesus is about to expand and enrich and deepen Martha's faith in himself. And dear people, this is invariably the way of Jesus when he goes to minister to despondent and distraught believers in order to bring them into a deeper understanding of himself. Remember how at the close of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn for, from me, for I am lowly, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He ministers to the weak, to the despondent, to the distressed, by seeking to bring them into a deeper understanding of himself. And he wants Martha in this context, as we'll see in a moment, to understand that the last day is not a day for which she is to look into the distant future, but that in him the last day has already arrived. I wonder if you've ever noticed in the reading of the New Testament that there's this dynamic that is woven throughout the gospel narratives and Paul's epistles in particular. Something that we refer to as the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. God's kingdom had already drawn near in the person of the king, the Lord Jesus, but not yet in all of its fullness. There was already the reality of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom had not yet come in its cosmic fullness. Therefore, it was already, but not yet. And Jesus wants Martha to understand that the resurrection is not only a future event to anticipate, but it is a present reality into which to enter. And so when she says, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection in the last day, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now pay attention to the grammar of our Lord in this passage. He does not say, I will be the resurrection and the life. But I am the resurrection and the life. Look to me, Martha, for standing in your very presence is the resurrection. And in the most dramatic of language that, that must have 
staggered her imagination. Jesus points Martha to himself. And in so doing, he is locating the resurrection and the life in himself, in his own person, as he is standing there in the dirt and dust of Palestine in time and space history. Martha, you're looking at the resurrection and the life in the here and now, standing in your very presence. The resurrection is not completely a future event. Now to be sure, it has a future fulfillment, as we're going to see in a moment. It has a future dimension, but it has in addition a present dimension. The resurrection is now. Now then, let's consider two questions, and I direct you back to your outline if you want to look at it. And the first is this, what does Jesus mean, I am the resurrection? What does he mean that the resurrection is now? It's not simply a future event which we're to anticipate and long for and look for. But it is a reality into which we are to enter here and now. I am at this moment the resurrection. Well, let's be clear first of all that Jesus isn't speaking here about disembodied existence that goes on and on and on perpetually forever. I think that the raising of Lazarus, which occurs later in the chapter, bodily from the dead, makes that very point. That the Christian hope is not endless spiritual existence. That's not the Christian hope. That's Platonism or Neoplatonism at its best. The Christian's hope is the resurrection of the body. The Christian hope is an enfleshed hope. It is an embodied hope. Jesus' resurrection, his public triumph over sin and death and hell was an embodied, enfleshed resurrection. And that's why the believer's resurrection is not complete until we receive new bodies. Until we receive new bodies, we live in glorified incompleteness. But when Jesus stands before Martha and says to her, I am the resurrection and the life, he is speaking as the embodied, enfleshed man. And he wants Martha to understand that the resurrection has already come in him. The enfleshed, embodied incarnate Son of God. And in the Lord Jesus, we see you and I, God's new humanity. He is the prototype of every new man and woman in Jesus Christ. And when Paul discloses to the Romans that God is conforming us to the likeness of His Son, we need to call to mind the glorified, enfleshed, embodied, risen Jesus Christ. We will receive a body like unto his own glorious body. I am the resurrection. 
And that resurrection signifies His triumph and dominion over sin and death and deterioration and the grave and all the powers of hell. That resurrection isn't some ephemeral, spiritual, transient, unsubstantial thing. But it has an enfleshed and embodied reality. And Jesus is set on deepening Martha's understanding in this passage. That that reality has already come in himself. True, Jesus himself is yet to be raised from the dead. But he is the resurrection. And dear people, let me say this. The resurrection of Christ was the most inevitable act of history. Because Jesus was, is the resurrection and the life. The death that he died, he died for sin and to sin once and for all. Not for his own sins, mind you. But when he paid the price of sin, it was the most inevitable act in the cosmos that the Father should raise him from the dead in glorified, in flesh, in bodily completeness. Now, what does Jesus mean here when he says, I am the life? I am the resurrection and the life. Now, there are some excellent commentators who think that this is simply a, a figure of speech called a pleonasm or a tautology, which simply means that life is another way of speaking regarding the resurrection. But I think our Lord is or underscoring something more than simply that. Remember in the opening verses of John's gospel in his great prologue, uh, we read there in verse 4 that in him was life. And in the New Testament, life in this sense is always described as relational. John chapter 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. 1 John 5 and verse 12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Life is not endless existence. It is life lived in relationship with God. And so Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me. And here Jesus is speaking to this believing woman whose heart is troubled and perplexed because her brother has died. And his words of, of comfort for her are these. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And Jesus is not speaking evangelistically to Martha. He's speaking to comfort her, to instruct her, to expand and enrich her understanding of himself and the gospel. 
I know that my brother will rise again in the last day. And Jesus' point to her in essence is this. Martha, take your eyes off the last day. Fix your eyes on me. I am the resurrection and the life. Your focus is not to be on the dim and the distant. But it's to be here and now on me. Because the resurrection and the life are found in Christ according to his own words. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now here's the great point that strikes me more than anything else. Have you noticed in this passage the overarching truth that shines and radiates in all of the Lord Jesus' I am utterances. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door to the sheepfold. He is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life. Has it struck you or have you noticed that all of these pictures, all of these I am utterances whereby Jesus exegetes his own self-conscious identity reveal to us this profound truth that as long as we're disconnected from Christ, as long as we remain detached from Christ, outside of Christ, who Jesus is has no significance for us. I am the resurrection and the life. Well, that is a great truth to be sure. I believe that. But Jesus does not stop there. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. How is Martha? How is Lazarus who is dead? How is Mary their sister? How are you and I? To be connected to the one who is in himself the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, Jesus says, though he die, yet shall he live. And that tells me that all of us somehow need to become connected to the one who is the resurrection and the life. We need to be connected to Christ. We need to get into Christ. The gospel does not simply summon us, dear people, to admiration. Oh no. It summons us to the adoration of participation into the one who loved us and gave himself for us. John Calvin, the great 16th century reformer, he begins book three of his institutes, his magnum opus, with these words. He says, how do we receive the benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? Not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. And Calvin gives this answer. This is, this is good. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, 
all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Our great need, this is what Calvin underscores, this is what the gospel underscores. Our great need is to get into him, to be joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, not merely to give him the assent of our minds. Oh yes, he's the resurrection and the life. All of that is well and good, because unless we believe into him, the resurrection and the life is meaningless to us. And the one thing that brings anyone into Jesus Christ, the only thing, is faith. Self-abandoning, self-renouncing trust in Jesus alone brings you into Jesus Christ. He who believes into me, though he may die, yet shall he live. Now that reality will be manifested with even greater crystal clarity in the seventh I am utterance, wherein Jesus declares himself to be, I am the true vine. And it's only as the branches are connected to the vine that they're connected to the life of the vine. And here's where I think so many people become confused about our great need. Have you ever had someone for whom you're very fond who is a lost person, but there's someone you're very fond for, and, and uh, perhaps a loved one says to you, well, you know, I wish I had your faith. Have you ever had someone say that to you? I wish I had your faith. But our great need, dear people, and I say this reverently, our great need is not faith. Our great need is Christ. Christ is our great need. Now, to be sure, it is only faith, self-abandoning trust that brings us into Christ. But Christ is our great need. Never, never confuse the instrumental means of grace with he who is the very fountain of grace, the Lord Jesus and that's why the early church preached Christ and him crucified time and time again and preached him in such a way that people desired to have this Christ and therefore pleaded how they may lay hold of this Jesus. Believe in him, trust in him, entrust yourself to him, cast your all upon him. And turn away from every self-seeking notion and commit yourself to him. Because we need above all else to be connected to Christ. Martha knew that her brother would rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But she had not yet come to understand that the resurrection would only happen in the last day. Because Jesus was in himself the resurrection and the life. Resurrection, therefore, is not a matter of the last day, but of the nail, of listening to the Son of God now. As a side note, that's old Herman Ritterboss from seminary. In this breathtaking I am utterance of the Lord Jesus, he is 
turning the focus of Martha away from the abstract belief that in the last day there is a resurrection. But he's turning her focus away from that to the concrete reality that Jesus Christ is in himself and is in himself exclusively the resurrection and the life. And Jesus' question to Martha is, do you believe this? Do you believe it? The Lord Jesus has been late in coming, purposely delayed his coming, not simply to raise Lazarus from the dead as a piece of razzle-dazzle whereby to awe and impress the folks standing there. But he did so in order to enrich and expand and deepen the understanding of Martha and others in himself and their relationship to him. Now make no mistake, Jesus does speak of the resurrection at the last day. All you have to do is turn back to John chapter 6, verses 39 through 40 and verse 44. Jesus there is referring to the resurrection at the last day. There he speaks of raising people on the last day. And so he's not saying that the last day is unimportant. But he is saying, he is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. The last day has come in me. And it's your relationship to me now which will determine how it will be with you and how it will go with you come the last day. The focus of your faith is not to be placed on the reality of what is yet to be, but on the one who already is the resurrection and the life. I am in myself the living reality of that event of the last day. That, dear people, is the astounding, breathtaking language which our Lord uses concerning himself. By virtue of your union with me, you have the resurrection already. Resurrection has come to you. It will come in its fullness, yes, when your bodies will be resurrected and God will miraculously, sovereignly reunite our souls to our glorified new body. But the resurrection is now, Jesus is saying. Do you believe this? Are you vitally connected to the one who is the resurrection and the life? Because if we're not connected to Jesus, we have no resurrection. We have no life. But if we are connected to Christ, we have the resurrection and the life now. And even though we die, yet shall we live. Because whoever lives and believes in me, Jesus says, shall never die. One day the resurrection will come to its perfection in glorified completeness. And our lowly bodies will be transformed like unto his glorious body. There is a last day, absolutely. But there's something more important than the last day. And that's Jesus Christ 
the present, the living one. May our hope and our trust be in him alone. Dear people of God, let us pray. 